0: This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than ten thousand policy reports and commentaries. I'm Susan Everingham. I'm the director of Rand's Pittsburgh office, and I'm so pleased to see mo- so many of you here. Um, I'm sorry, it's such a um, uh, scary topic that we have to talk about, but obviously there's a lot of interest. So it's great to have everybody in the audience. Um, this is a problem that is not only um, facing our, on, uh, our entire nation, but it's very close to home. I understand that we've had um, over 300 overdose deaths in Allegheny uh, County this past year and that's only going to increase if we don't do something about it. So um, today our panelists will help us understand how we came to such a critical point and um, give us an opportunity to think about what options we have for addressing this problem. I'm very pleased to introduce our moderator. Karen Wolfbeinstein is the president and CEO. She's on the end over there, Jewish Healthcare Foundation and its two operating arms, the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative and the Health Careers Future. Dr. Feinstein has kindly agreed to moderate this event and also to start by introducing our panelists
1: and posing the questions that will get the conversation going. So let me uh, stop talking and turn this over to Karen. I'm delighted to introduce our panelists. So Mike Flaherty, how can we do this without Michael? Those of you who know Mike, I've known him, oh my gosh, so many years. He's a clinical psychologist. He co-founded the Institute for Research, Education, and Training and addictions and became the principal investigator of its Northeast Addiction Technology Transfer Center. Many of us remember Mike from his years at St. Francis, working with uh, Dr. Tversky, and um, we have all learned much of what we know about addictions from Michael. Uh, Next to Michael is a wonderful addition to the landscape in Pittsburgh, Karen Hacker, Dr. Karen Hacker. She's director of the Allegheny County Health Department and secretary to the Allegheny County Board of Health. She's also serving as an adjunct professor in the Departments of Health, Policy Management, Behavioral and Community Health Sciences at Pitt's Graduate School of Public Health and is a clinical professor at the School of Medicine. Brad Stein, uh, Dr. Bradstein is a senior natural scientist and an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh, a health services and policy re- researcher with clinical experience working with children and adults with mental health and substance use disorders. So you can see we have a terrific panel. Um, so we're going to take the first question to Mike, Mike, um, with your broad overview of the issue of addiction. Um, talk to us about the topic of opioid and heroin addiction right now, dominating the headlines. Some of us turned on CNN last night. There it was. Uh, but addiction's not a new problem. So why so much attention now? What's, what's going on with all this publicity about an epidemic?
2: Well, what's happened recently, as you all know, is we've now achieved um, the fact that we are uh, – with over 47,000 deaths in 2014 to overdose to heroin and and opiates, that's become the single greatest cause for accidental death in America. And it's not just that one number, which by the way is greater than all the servicemen we lost in Iraq, Afghanistan and Vietnam in total, and that's one year I'm talking about, but it, it goes back for the last 12 years where every year for the last 12 years there's been an increase in the number of deaths including the last four years where there's been a doubling and and even more Uh, and as you heard earlier the projections when I was at St. Francis Karen if we had 15 overdoses in a year we had an emergency county meeting Mm -hmm. and we would sit downtown with the health department and, and, and the commissioners and say you know what are we doing what's wrong and now we're over 300 just in Allegheny and similarly in other counties. And if you look nationally, we're 14th in the nation in overdose deaths in Pennsylvania, and some of our counties in western Pennsylvania are even the highest in the nation. Um, there's a reason why, but this is why it's catching our attention now. And, and, and how did we, we, we get here is an interesting um, synergistic effect of events. If I may, uh, the first, I'm going to be very brief, but the first way we got here was in 1995. The American Academy on Pain proclaimed pain as the fifth vital sign. And no individual should have pain. So that everybody was encouraged to tell their doctor they had pain and that there were remedies, mostly analgesics, many agonists that would be prescribed and take away your pain. At that point, many of our pharmaceutical companies saw an opportunity to not only deal with the pain issue but to market even stronger analgesics than we currently had. Uh, so things like oxycotton and others were produced at profit margins of about $400 million per month for oxycotton, which was attributed to not be as addicted, uh, particularly in the pain management population, which in fact was not true. So we now have, in our country, a prescription afloat across our nation for nearly every single adult to have a 30-day supply of opiates in their medicine chest. So it went from a small prescription basis to a very large prescription basis. And, and that problem left many doctors, of which 80% say they feel entirely unprepared by medical school to, to address this problem, And only 30% of our medical schools even teach a course in opiate prescription, and only 15 of those in addiction, and that's always an elective. So here you have the greatest single cause of accidental death in this country and very little medical preparation for the management of the ultimate end of that illness, addiction. (coughs) The second fact, and I don't want to put it all on our doctors or our prescribers, was addiction treatment itself for over fifty years we have neglected the growing problem of substance use in our society and we've pushed it down the carpet and around the room it's to the point today where for the twenty six million people in this country struggling with an addiction we only have a treatment capacity for two point three million of them if they all came in for help where are they? They They're in our jails, Dr. Bloomstein's nodding yes And they're in our emergency rooms, and they're in our graves. So that denial, societal denial, which is the first indication of the clinical illness itself, denial, rationalization, projection, that societal denial has brought an insufficiency of treatment capacity. So you have a proliferation of very powerful medications, which you have very little time to use, a month's supply four times a day, will likely get you a dependency, which was told not so, and you have a a paucity of treatment and inadequate medical care. Now, you have those two things with a third factor, which I would suggest played into all of this in the last 16 years or so. And this was written uh, about in many, uh, David Brooks hit it this weekend in the New York Times saying, West Virginia lost the mining industry to the drug industry. The biggest industry in West Virginia today is the illicit sale of drugs and if you look at their overdose rates and if you look at where their cartels have planted their dealers, their home base there, they come up to where our medical centers are, they let our doctors and our treatment centers cultivate a population and then they come in with cheaper heroin so that you get a $30 pill of Oxycontin or Buprenorphine and you sell it for your $5 bag of heroin and you made $20 in the process. So what I'm saying, the third factor here is the economy. Pharmacological bitcoins have been created. So you have, yesterday in Pittsburgh we had a drug bust. Fourteen people were arrested in a relatively moderate sized drug ring. Fourteen people, all deriving an economy from the dealing of drugs. You have the cartels trying to get them here cheaper. And you have the addicted population saying, I need some money. I can sell a $30 pill for a $5 bag. And if you go to your treatment centers, which I do everywhere around the country, and find out who's in there, you're going to say 80% of them started on pills, went over to the illicit drugs of heroin, found buprenorphine as a way to avoid getting into treatment, and buprenorphine itself does not require all the psychosocial supports, which is another problem with the medical treatment of Buprenorphine. It's a godsend to so many people, but it still has a high rate of diversion. So we have to watch that and fix that. So you take this synergy of economy, paucity of treatment, inadequate treatment, low medical assisted treatment, and this high prescription rate, put it together, and you have an explosion called an epidemic.
1: Thank you, Michael. (laughs) Um, Okay, we're depressed. Um, Brad. (laughs) Brad, you're really upbeat. Um, (laughs) What progress have we made in getting treatment for this addiction? What are some of the challenges in getting uh, treatment? And from a policy perspective, there are a lot of policy people out here. uh, What can we do to get enough access to adequate treatment?
3: Well, you know, I, I think, as Mike points out, this is an overwhelming problem that's been growing, but, but I do think it's important to recognize that we've both added tools and that there has been some progress in some areas. And more importantly, I think we've been learning in recent years some of the things that states have put in place, federal, pol- federal policymakers have put in place, that at least provide some of the path forward. And I'm going to talk about treatment I do think it's important for me to just at this point point that there is no silver bullet here, right? It's not just going to be about treatment. It's not just going to be about restricting medications. This is a problem that's really going to take a whole variety of different policy approaches, and it's really going to take grinding it out day by day. We've gotten here over many, many years. We're not going to solve this problem overnight. Um, But, you know, a lot of the work that we've done suggests that over time we have seen changes in how we think about treatment. Um, for many years, really the only treatment people considered were long inpatient stays or various types of A groups. Um, but we're increasingly realizing that something called medication-assisted treatment, and you heard Mike refer to methadone, you heard him refer to buprenorphine, that those treatments really are among the most effective treatments for helping people who are addicted to opioids. Um, and so methadone's been there for a long time, very effective medication, But historically, only about 25% of the people who needed it got access to it. Um, There aren't a lot of slots. Methadone can only be dispensed in methadone clinics, and 90% of those are in urban areas. So if you live far from them or if you can't make it there every day, you really can't take advantage of that treatment. And so about 2002, 2003, a medication called buprenorphine became available. Um, And it's a medication that is uh, pretty much equally as effective to methadone for many people. But because in some ways it is safer, not completely safe, but some ways it is safer, it can be prescribed and taken at home and you don't need to go every day. And so some of our work has really looked at what's happened to access to treatment once that became available. And what we found is starting in 2002 before it became available, 50% of the U.S. population had access in their county to medication-assisted treatment. And pretty much, that's those are the people who are living in the urban areas. In the 10 years after that, as physicians became wavered and approved to use buprenorphine, we found that it went from 50% to over 90% of the U.S. population had access in their county. Doesn't mean that there weren't waiting lists. Doesn't mean that everyone was able to get treatment. But it was one of those things that clearly and dramatically improved access to many people. When we look at this at particular populations, we see in some of those counties, the number of individuals who are Medicaid enrolled receiving medication that's just the treatment tripling. It goes from 15% to 45%. Is 45% great? No, it's, is it where we want to be? No, but we're able to get people to effective treatment. And so I think that we, we have made progress. And I think if, for those of you who are following the news, Even today, there are a number of bills moving through Congress that really are intended to think about ways to make access to these types of effective treatment more available. Um, That said, I still think we're learning that there's lots of, there's much more we need to do. Buprenorphine, like many other medications, can be diverted. We need to figure out that problem. As Mike said, for many individuals, It's not just a medication that they need counseling. It does seem that buprenorphine, for some individuals, particularly when more stable, that may be all they need. But certainly for many individuals, those additional supports are something that's important. So there are other pieces. We need to make sure people are staying on it long enough. Initially, when it came out, people were thinking, well, you know, we can treat people for six months, and then it'll be fine, and we can kind of withdraw the medication. And so as a result, many states established policies that they would approve buprenorphine For only six months. What we've learned over time, and it's not surprising, addiction isn't an acute disorder. It's not like a fever. This is a chronic disorder that's episodic and relapsing. Chronic disorders like diabetes and asthma. These are things that people in many cases needed to be treated for on medications for their lifetime. And so I think we need to take our understanding of the types of treatment we need to provide, and the types of quality around that treatment that we need to make available, and we need to make sure that our policies and our <laughs> clinical training programs are well-aligned so that those are the types of interventions that are available for the families, for the individuals suffering with this disorder. So we clearly have challenges. Mike is right. And there's, there's a lot of storm clouds overhead. But I do think that we have seen some progress, and we've seen learning from that progress, some ways forward and some things that we can continue to do as a society and among policymakers to continue to make progress.
1: Thanks, Brad. Um, We're going to move on to prevention. So Karen's going to tell us how not to get pain, (laughs) not to feel pain, give you my personal suggestion don't try and lift your grandchild in a 30-pound car seat (laughs) and forget windsurfing over the age of 60. So Karen's going to tell us how, what we might think about. This is a really important issue, what we might do in the way of prevention.
4: You know, I think one, so first of all, um, I'm also an adolescent medicine doctor, and uh, certainly part of my training many years ago was in adolescent substance abuse because we have known for a very long time that adolescents are particularly vulnerable to getting engaged in substances. And there is a lot of research that's been done on the risk factors, which young people are more or less vulnerable to substance abuse, which which engages everything from what's going on in their home, whether or not their parents (coughs) talk to them about these issues, whether or not they have a caring environment, the rules and regulations in their schools, but also their family history those types of things. And, and as was said earlier, we've had an addiction problem forever. I, I often say we've had an addiction problem since they made heroin illegal, which was, what, in the 1920s or something like that? Right, right. When they basically decided that a whole group of people were now criminals, essentially. <laughs> um, and for the longest time, at least, you know, when I was training, we would say things like, oh, you know, we're always going to have about 1% of our population addicted to heroin. You know, it is what it is. We've tried a whole variety of different strategies. We've tried prevention. We've tried all these things, and we're, we don't really have much of a handle. And it's really been in the last 12 to, to 14 years that we've just seen this total change in, in addiction and in epidemics as a result of these opioids. So a lot of what I, was, uh, what I learned about, what I... Um, examined in terms of adolescent prevention, which includes, uh, by the way, if you're interested on the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, they have a long list of what are called evidence-based practices for prevention. And they include uh, very general types of programming in schools, things like guiding good choices, they include very selective programming for children who have aggressive behaviors or who have other types of tendencies, Um, and they have been shown to work very effectively. But now we're talking about a different problem. When you begin to understand where the individuals we're talking about now who are overdosing, how they got the medication, how they actually became addicted, pain obviously becomes a big part of this. And uh, when you look at, I I sent around yesterday, a, a graphic which showed the difference between this country and pain medications and all of Europe and all of the Western countries in Europe. And it is such a dramatic difference. I want to say, what was it? It's next only to Estonia, I think, which it's was like you know, probably, shocking. it was it's like shocking. red United States, the entire United States at the top, and then the other countries, with the exception of Estonia, were essentially using almost none of this. So what's going on there? What is it that we, what is our thing with pain and how we should be treating it? I would also argue that most physicians have absolutely no idea how to treat pain. Certainly not something we talk about. It's, you know, we we have very little time. Many physicians have very little time in the exam room. This is the option that they can use. It certainly works. It also obviously creates addiction, but it does work. And we also do need to remember that a lot of folks who actually are on opioids are not addicted. And I I do think that's important to remember because there are people with chronic pain conditions that have been on medications forever, right? I mean, in my own family, we have an individual in the family who's been on pain meds for probably 15 years, She's probably tolerant anyway, um, but certainly not exhibiting the kinds of behaviors we're talking about or or overdosing. So then you get into this question of, well, how do you prevent that? And what happens in the office with the physician, I think, is actually pretty critical. How do we understand which patients are more vulnerable to addiction? How much, obviously, there's a lot of discussion about uh, prescription monitoring, how many you should be giving to which types of patients, but... I know very few physicians at this point who are actually doing any kind of an assessment before they write that prescription. And remember, it's, it's physicians, it's dentists, um, it's the emergency room that are putting these things out there. Um, I always ask in the room, how many people in this room are willing to admit that they have opioids in their medicine cabinet? Okay. <laughs> Not as many as the last time I asked that Mm -hmm. question, but that sort of says it all. It is not uncommon to be given a prescription for medicine, to not complete it, and to think, well, maybe I'm gonna need it someday, and it was hard to get, right? So I'm gonna just lodge it up there. Um, And what we hear from young people in particular, and there have been some surveys, and I think Michael shared it with me, Mm -hmm. was um, the reason they say they got into this happened that a friend gave it to them that it was a prescription after all, and therefore it wasn't very problematic. We have seen the lowering of the risk threshold when it comes to opioids and even to heroin. I mean, I've literally heard people say that there are high schools in our own Allegheny County Mm -hmm. where it's chic to use heroin, Mm -hmm. maybe sniffing it, maybe not shooting it. So now we get into a very different discussion, I think, about prevention that not only includes how do we help young people in particular – become resilient so that these types of things do not become a problem? But then simultaneously, how do we get people who do happen to have pain conditions to understand the risk that's involved? What are the other options that we have for pain uh, management? Pain clinics, what does that really look like? I talked to a physician yesterday, and they said, well, I send a lot of patients, but then they send them back to me, and the person says, 'I I saw that guy a day and didn't get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. So our options are, are really limited, and I think if we're going to really think about the preventive end of not creating more and more addicted individuals, we have to think about that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. You've all got us off to a, a terrific beginning. So, Mike, since I've known you the longest, I can give you the toughest. Um, <laughs> so many people are dying, but this is an industry. A lot of people are benefiting. It's an industry. Are we going to predict pushback from pharma, pushback from people who are making money on this? How will we know it's happening? You know, what are we going to see? I mean, there are going to be forces that are opposed to us reducing the availability of painkilling drugs.
2: Indeed. It's already happened, even to me personally, and I wish Neil Capretto could be here. I'm sure he is in spirit, but Dr. Capretto from Gateway is is a real advocate to our community on this issue, and he and I both often used to call each other at night and say, I gave a talk at such-and-such such town tonight, and on the way out, the pharmaceutical rep said to me, you know, we're taping everything you say, and when you say it, if you say anything erroneous, we'll, we will make sure that you know about it. This was six or seven years ago. Um, and Neil has had that. I have had that numerous times. And there is a pushback, Karen. Um, you know, why doesn't the FDA, for example, put these medications in non-injectable manners or in uh, pills that can't be so easily diverted and used. They've had opportunities, uh, most recently with Zohydro, which is even more powerful than Oxycontin, and yet uh, attempts were made by uh, attorney generals in states to stop Zohydro from coming into their states, and the FDA would not change the the formula for how Zohydro is marketed. Um, The profit margins, uh, pharmaceutical companies have been fined, in their pushback for misleading the general public and not not providing a proper education uh, of the general public about the medications. Four states right now are preparing lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies saying they should bear the societal costs for this. And, And I can tell you last week at a medical conference, three doctors were coming out of retirement because they managed pain management practices, retired but can't now live with that, and now they're going back getting certified in addictions treatment and going to spend what years are left treating people with the problem that Dr. Hacker just pointed out. It's not the the physicians get the patient so far, and then the the illness itself takes over. So it, the physician is as is, is stymied as anybody. Uh, and many times at St. Francis, doctors would call and say, I'm sending patient John Jones over, with a bag of what I am prescribing, and can you take it from there? And we would have to put the person in the hospital and, and slowly reach a tolerance, understanding, and then safely manage that down so it could be treated in a, in a, in a physician's office. But will there be a pushback on this? Absolutely. And I'll tell you where, where, where there's a concern, too. Our military are, are twice the rate of opiate use than our civilian population on a per capita basis. And there, they get sent home without the necessary psychosocial supports and treatments. So we have to be very cautious there. But again, the marketing, the profit-making, uh, uh, Purdue Pharma was fined about $350 million in this process, which for them was a month's profit. Um, and and th- they did turn OxyContin into a non-injectable formula as a result. And guess what happened to their profit margins when they did that? They bottomed out, which told everybody they weren't being used for pain as much as they were being used for injection. And most patients do not self-inject OxyContin. It's just not likely. Oh,
1: boy. Um, Brad, uh, just today, just getting ready for this program, uh, one thing came across my desk, one came across the computer. Um, the one across my, the computer, let's start with that, it was a, featuring a doctor in West Virginia who himself had become addicted to opioids, but he was treating a number of people with complementary and alternative medicine solutions. So so one of my questions is, do those solutions work? How do people get access? Do they pay for it out of pocket? And then this is a flip side in a way. Are there unintended consequences for some of the other treatments we're recommending? I mean, <laughs> does do a number of treatments come with their own consequences?
3: You know, I, I think one of the things I was taught in medical school is every medication has side effects, right? There, there's nothing that's pure. I, The way I think about all of these options, and you've heard kind of both Mike and Karen allude to it, is we have people out there that need treatment, and so while certainly there's a problem with opioids, for some people they are effective. And for those people, we need to make sure that they continue to have access to them. But we're also learning that for many people with chronic pain, it's becoming pretty clear that opioids, while they're often used a lot, there are probably a number of other approaches that are equally or more effective. And so, you know, as I think both about this on sort of the treatment of pain side and also the treatment of opioid use disorder side. I keep on coming back to, instead of broad sweeping kind of changes that potentially will have those unintended consequences, this idea of how can we educate physicians, and more importantly, how can we create a healthcare system? So it's not just an individual, but it's a system so that people are receiving the appropriate treatments that minimize the possibility of unintended consequences. And by that I mean for someone who has pain exploring in various treatment options. Mm-hmm. Whether it be medications, whether it be physical therapy, wh- whether it be exercise any number of alternatives that probably will certainly don't have the same potential unintended consequences as do prescription opioids. That's what needs to be done. On the treatment side, as people are coming in, we need to expand treatment options. Mike talked about the specialty capacity in terms of specialty clinics. that There just isn't enough, and we know that. But, you know, for many other chronic disorders, and I continue to go back to this idea of chronic disorders, for most chronic disorders, we don't necessarily send everyone to specialty clinics. Our healthcare system more generally is prepared to treat someone with chronic disorders. So, you know, those of you who know me, I I tend to occasionally ask provocative questions. So I'm going to ask a couple audience questions before you guys have a chance to ask us some stuff. And I'm I'm just going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you, I'm assuming most of you have a physician, an internist, a family practice dog, someone like that you go to. How many of you think that your physician routinely treats people with diabetes? Show of hands. Chronic disorder. What about asthma? Okay. Now let me get a little bit more provocative. What about routinely routinely treating someone who has HIV in their practice? Yes? No? How many of you think your physician routinely treats people for opioid use disorders? Right? And, and, and so right there, I think it's a problem. And and so and before I move on, I think the one thing we need to address through all of this is... How many of you who didn't raise your hand think one of the reasons your physician may not treat people with opioid use disorder is because concern on that part of the physician about what he thinks his patients would think if they knew he was treating addicts? Right? I've heard it. (laughs) There's stigma out there, folks. And, And so I think as we're thinking about this, and as we're thinking about models of treatment, we need to enhance quality, but we also need to think about societally how we think about these disorders.
1: It's interesting, Brad, if you asked me why, for whatever reason, I wouldn't think my doctor was doing it. I think it's really hard to say no to people you know well who are in pain. And I also know that you know everyone's getting rated on their Prescani and, and their age caps and everything else. You're not exactly popular if you say, you know, do meditation and deep breathing when you can't get out of bed. So, you know, I I might have picked some other ones, Um, but that is very good. Thank you. Um, Karen, um, one of the things that arrived on my desk was a program at McGee. I saw two beautiful twin babies, and I had to open it, of course, and it was about this amazing program. I didn't even know it existed to help Um, women who are pregnant get through their pregnancy while they're going through withdrawal. And what seemed to me so important about this in terms of prevention is if that mother doesn't successfully lick the habit and and move on to a better phase in life. The the story, this was a person in a very bad place. She wasn't just addicted. She was in a very bad place. But what a, I mean, I don't know your feeling. It seemed unique and what a wonderful preventive method (coughs) you know, you'll get a better mother, you'll get hopefully a better birth outcome, but um, are there, talk about prevention, are there some programs that we don't have here that we should be thinking about, and also as um, someone who's had an interesting career in science and academia as well, where are we in predictive analytics? I mean, what don't we know, or in a way, is this a great topic for Rand and others, How, how do you predict? I mean, Two people get prescribed opioids, one becomes addicted, one doesn't, you know, where are we in that science?
4: So I'll start with the first one. Uh, So I think what we're starting to see here um, is definitely a development of new programs. So the McGee program is one, I know there have been discussions at West Penn as well, um, Western Psych is, is really launching a big addictions program. I mean, I would sort of agree um, with Brad that I don't think in general that we've had the kind of focus on, addictive tr- on addictions treatment that perhaps we've had on other types of things. There, we've done a really good job in this country. We, you know, we've already separated mental health and physical health. Well, now we've separated addictions even from mental health. I mean, to the point where you would hear people say, well, you know, I don't even want to see this person for mental health treatment until they get their addiction taken care of because I can't possibly talk to them if they're coming in high. Uh, and I don't think that, and you know, you're the psychiatrist, so you could speak more to this, but I don't think um, even within the mental health field that you, if you asked how many mental health providers actually feel comfortable treating addictions, my bet is that you would only still have a handful who feel comfortable. So we've had this incredible ability to separate these things into categories. We've got to bring them back together because often people who are addicted also have medical problems and may also have mental health problems. Um, People who are addicted are also using uh, these medications for self-medication, right? In in lieu of psychopharm, they're using this type of psychopharm. So, you know, so I think that that all these programs, we're starting to see them percolate, but it feels, to me at least, and you know, I'd be interested to hear with Michael, had, that it's still fairly in its infancy mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And even within the addiction field, there's a lot of controversy about whether to use medication-assisted treatment or not. Mm-hmm. We, were, we visit, recently visited Baltimore, and when they began their induction clinics uh, with Suboxone, they lost a lot of treatment providers because they felt that they didn't want to consider using medication mm-hmm. as part of their treatment modalities. It was all or nothing, it was, uh, you know, AA, that's it, 12-step, nothing else. So I think there's so much work to do within the treatment field as well to make the type of treatment available so that you can take this incoming number of, of folks um, going on. And I'm going to forget what you asked me for the second half of the question.
1: <laughs> um, well, I, I will ask um, for the last, very last comments from each of you. We are sitting in RAND. Um, and your second predictive. one was predictive analytics. What, what are the big research questions? I mean, what, what should we be looking to Ray and Susan? To do? I mean, there are a lot of things we don't know. I mean, even just unintended consequences of re- withholding pain medication. Are we going to have more divorces, more surgeries, more unemployment? I'm serious. You know, And there's so many good research questions out here. So I, I might that was your second part, but I'll leave it to all of you. What should we be researching?
4: So I just wanted to say a little bit about predictive analytics and I'll let these guys jump in since I was doing that. And I, I we are doing some work with uh, human services and trying to look at the folks who died of opioids in terms of what are some of the areas that we can identify as sort of pivotal points. Um, and that report should be coming out soon. But some of the major issues for us is we're very concerned about periods of abstinence and those being at putting people at very high risk for overdose. Mm -hmm. So you know the whole issue of if we really want to stop mortality in particular, um, I think that there's an incredible amount of work that could be done around trying to identify who and what should I be doing as a physician when I have that patient with pain who may legitimately need opioids, but how do I determine whether or not this person is at high risk for addiction? And that there's a lot more we could be doing in that area. Uh, So to me, that would be very critical. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, Michael. Okay. You're looking happy, so I'll turn okay. to you next <laughs> and
2: then, Brad. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, well, macro and micro. Uh, since we're with Rand, I would say macro. Um, and, and you've done this. I know Jonathan is here and John Calkins, and, and he's done part of it. But the one question I would ask Rand to do for, for all of us is the cost of not treating addiction in our society and really break that down to you know, not just the, psychos- the social costs of incarceration. I know others have done it, and it comes in around $500 billion, but we need more. We need more to get to the medical costs, the physical costs, the healthcare costs, the family costs, and then factor that into some kind of analytics, Karen, that would allow us to say, all right, well, if we address this part of it, we reduce this amount of the cost. And We can't do it all. We just can't. So at this macro level, if we could show the true cost, You know 500 plus billion a year and and by the way treatment comes out at about two cents on every dollar of that the cost of treatment so but if we had that data then we could perhaps as a society really understand why we're having such a hard time meeting our budget among other things (laughs) at at the at the local level I would I would ask to do what we've recommended in the uh, task force report that uh, US Attorney Dave Hickton put out with Karen and others that we came together and we asked that every single overdose be analyzed by a, a county for a root cause analysis not to indict not to arrest but to assure every parent that no death is meaningless and to strengthen our systems so that as I did in hundred I looked, I've looked at over 120 overdose records in different places and I was able to get the coroner report and look backward And 67% of the time, I found that this person had intercept points with our criminal justice system or with our treatment system that just plain didn't stick. So how can we make those intercept points stick? And in many cases, it's as Brad said, the treatment was inadequate, insufficient, and not the right kind of treatment for the presenting problem. Ended up in the criminal justice system. And then, as Karen pointed out, they come out with a lower level of tolerance use, and that's a risk point even coming out of rehab. So those are the two questions I would go for. One on the macro level, so we are honest about what the true cost of this f- is for all of us. One in four of our families are dealing with this now. And at the micro level, is use that qualitative analysis of each death so we can strengthen our systems.
1: Well, it's great to see our EMS providers here. Um, I, I hear a partnership in the works. Okay, Brad.
3: You know, I I think... There are so many areas here, so I'll share with you some of the areas that we are sort of in the midst of beginning to pursue right now. You've heard me talk about quality, which is very nice to say, but the question is, how do we do it? Um, And so right now, we are in the midst – so let me share with you some of the things we're learning. You've heard me and others talk about that you need to be treated for a while. This isn't a short-term treatment. Yet we're seeing a lot of the people who are receiving treatment for opioid use disorder receiving treatment that is likely far shorter than is likely to be effective. So one of the things we're trying to understand right now is what, what does it take in terms of systems, in terms of policies, in terms of reimbursement? Not out here, but what does it take? Can we learn things that are actionable so that we can inform states and health systems about specific things they can do to improve the quality of treatment. One, let me shift on a prescribing side. You've heard comments about questionable treatment. So we've started to use data to look and see what we're seeing in terms of patterns of opioid describing and prescribing. And one of the things we focused on I'm going to call clinically questionable. And so let me give an example of that. Someone who's been treated for an opioid use disorder right, and has received treatment The following year, if you see them getting prescriptions for OxyContin, that's clinically questionable. You kind of scratch your head and say, you know, there may be an exception, but we wonder about that. And I'll share with you that we're seeing substantial amounts of clinically questionable prescribing to individuals who've been treated for opioid use disorders. But what may be important here is we're starting to understand that this isn't all prescribers. There seems to be a relatively small group of prescribers who's responsible for a substantial amount of the inappropriate prescribing. Why? We're not sure. One could suggest that maybe they're doing it for reasons that may not be very pure. Some of it may they just not be trained. We don't know. But if we can identify, instead of saying, we're going to stop everyone from using opioids, and really understand patterns of treatment that lead to these problems. You talk about predictive analytics. If we can identify who the prescribers are and who the patients are and think about how do we build systems around them, how do we design policies and clinical systems to, even if we can't give, make everyone give the best possible care, let's get rid of some of these most problematic care. And, and I think there's some real opportunities here to do research that in a relatively short term may allow us to develop clinical tools and policies and allow individuals throughout the system to make informed choices that may really be able to have an impact here. It's not going to change the problem. None of these are silver bullets. But if I can take care of 5% here and 5% here, you know, over time, that's a tremendous amount of lives
1: Thank you. Um, here's what's going to happen next. We are going to go into the, the question and answer period.
5: Hi. Um, I basically have a question for the whole panel. Um, so uh, I'm with the Department of Human Services, and we're actually looking at some of the overdose deaths that occurred in the county. Uh, looking at a seven-year period in reviewing the medical examiner's reports, we're trying to look at which drugs were indicated. You see pharmaceuticals. You see the fentanyl, heroin, all that stuff what we, we only saw in two out of 1,400 cases was buprenorphine or suboxone indicated. Now, there are certainly concerns. Some, some I've been trying to wrap my head around. There's certainly concerns with the diversion, so the sort of public safety uh, concerns. But in terms of health and uh, overdose risks, um, you know, two were indicated as attributable to the cause of death. Um, what we also see is patterns of Uh, treatment uh, where someone has, it's a smaller number, but someone has been prescribed continuously on the medication, comes off of it, and then a short period later, you then see Mm -hmm. that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that that person in the medical office. So I'm just wondering, you know, the distinction between the sort of public safety concerns with Suboxone Diversion and the health issues. It has a half, uh, you know, it's a partial agonist and uh, the fact that you could really, you know, take a lot of it and it's not a full agonist, that may um, shut your breathing down and other vital signs. So just wonder what the perspectives are about that.
1: I will definitely not be answering Uh, this.
2: (laughs) Well, my point, Eric, I think I made reference to what you're addressing there, is that you're right, the nature of the the medication itself would not make it... uh, likely to be the cause of an overdose because it only goes so far and then the antagonist kicks in so the, the individual is somewhat protected but if they died from anything on that they would probably die from trying to shoot over it. The real concern I have about Suboxin is in the diversion of it at earlier points and then having somebody say look I feel bad I've took, taken my medication, my Oxycontins and I, I don't want to use them now, what do you got? And this is what I see in in, in clinical practice. And then somebody hands them Suboxone, and they just stay away from treatment and kind of pass along. So in, in essence, what happens is the N of those people who are addicted broadens, not the overdose. But then later, when they come down to the point where they can't afford that or can't get that, then they go to the heroin, and that's where it is. So my concern about Suboxone is more upstream on the overdose continuum, but it's at the expansion of dependence to the drug rather than getting a, an earlier
3: intervention and treatment. Yeah. Suboxone's tricky, right? Because if we talk about diversion of Tylenol-3 with codeine, if, if we talk about any diversion of any other opioid, it's something people are taking, and they may be giving it to a friend, they may be stealing it from their parents' uh, right medicine cabinet, but they're taking it to get high. And, and when we talk about diversion of almost any other opioid, that's what we're talking about. Suboxone, increasingly, what we're learning is when it's being diverted, it's being diverted not for the reason of getting high, but it's being diverted because people realize it can prevent them from going into withdrawal. (coughs) So it may be people who are trying to get clean on their own and not coming into the system. And for some of those people, they start there and then come in. That's good. For some people, they start there and don't come in. That's probably not good. For others, it may be that their usual source of heroin or prescription opioids just got busted, and they're gonna go into withdrawal, and so they're using it to sort of not go into withdrawal. So it, it's clearly a problem, it's clearly something we need to understand, but it's much more complicated than almost any of the opioids, and I think that's something that we are just beginning to learn and understand, and the data's still lagging. So there are tons and tons of stories out there and we're only beginning to put some numbers and understand really what's happening. So it, it is fairly complicated, but I think it's completely consistent with what you're seeing in the data.
1: Mm-hmm. Karen, uh, did you want to... I know,
4: Eric, so I'm going to let you <laughs> I'm going to let these guys answer this one. <laughs>
1: okay, we, another question?
0: Hi, I'm Mary Gruber from the Jefferson Regional Foundation. Hasn't really been any discussion tonight about mortality and the use of naloxone to basically save people's lives, so that they could be available for treatment. Can you talk a little bit about where you see that in the continuum and how important it is? And is there more to do there? So um, I can
4: grab this one. So uh, on the as a health department director, I've got to stop the mortality, right? And naloxone is pretty much the best we have right now. And obviously, EMS guys, you've been using this stuff forever. I was using this stuff when I was a resident in the emergency room. It's not a new drug. But making it as available as possible to prevent death um, is at least a strategy that we're trying, but that has also been tried in other states where um, overdoses is a very high risk. Of course, the challenge with naloxone is it has nothing, no impact on addiction right so you know the stories we often hear and you know we got the EMS guys here and they say this to me i saw the same guy and i gave him another dose and another dose and i've literally had people to say like you know well if you give them another one then you're just enabling them. and it's like well they're going to be dead otherwise <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean that's the challenge here it is it is considered harm reduction it is not a treatment option but you know you're not going to get into treatment if you're dead so getting it out there You know, now I think with naloxone, we have the policy uh, structure around us. So we have um, Act One Thirty Five, which gives us the Good Samaritan clause. We have uh, availability of in our county. Though I will tell you that of the police, we probably only have about six police departments of one hundred and thirty, or no, excuse me, of fifty-two police departments that have. decided to carry naloxone. Uh, Our pharmacies, while we have standing orders, both from myself and also from the physician general, what we hear is uh, people go into a pharmacy, particularly a chain pharmacy, and the person doesn't know what they're talking about. So I do feel that we still have a lot of work to do in terms of making sure that we actually take to scale um, the ability to get access to naloxone. There is very little evidence, as you probably know, that the drug itself is going to have a lot of side effects or risk, a risks associated with it Um, but again you know there is that belief for a lot of people that this just enables the ongoing addiction because now somebody could think oh well you know I can go get high and I'm going to be protected because someone near me has naloxone. I personally have not heard anyone tell me that kind of thing uh, but you know, I think that is often the, the pressure that comes. These days, I gotta tell you, I mean, I started doing, I started writing the prescriptions for naloxone about 10 years ago in Massachusetts when it was very out there <laughs> on the edge. Um, we're seeing so much of it now that I don't think it's, it has that kind of stigma associated with it. But with that said, and, and sort of back to what Michael said, guess which companies are making naloxone? The very same companies that are making the opioids. And the price of naloxone has literally, in almost six months, doubled, if mm-hmm. not gone higher. They just did the first FDA nasal uh, naloxone. It's more expensive to what we were already paying for the dual dose with the mm-hmm. cannulas. So we've gone from $40, I think, for a double dose to over
5: $65. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name's Damien Zamayas, I'm a real estate developer. Uh, question is this. Uh, what percent of taxpayer money at the federal state local level goes to law enforcement and what percent goes to education and treatment I know you mentioned two percent yeah. a, a number but that was a much larger number so in terms of tax dollars vis-a-vis I'm uh, percent
2: refer to uh, uh, Joseph Califano's study done at the Columbia University and it, it, and the, the figure there was of every dollar of wreckage in other words incarceration death. Societal cost of every dollar: one point nine cents goes to treatment, and two point two cents goes to, in cars, to the law enforcement, interdiction side. So that's a societal ba- offset there. So, it, it, so you're taking this tiny, tiny little garden hose. No, you're taking a bucket <laughs> to this big fire, and but it's one point nine cents for treatment and two point two cents for law enforcement. So about three cents, four cents of the dollar of the cost of this problem to our society is is at that level, that's all. Now, that's substantial though in, in terms of millions and research and cost and healthcare costs. That's why I said at the beginning denial is the biggest factor, that we've left this go for 50 years and pushed it along the carpet. And now with this purity, and I mean purity, of medication where we don't have the limits of error anymore, we used to be able to say to people regularly, you can go to de- detox, rehab, do it drug-free, quote, quote. We don't have that anymore with opiates. We we just don't have the the the, the room for error. And that's why our EMS services are coming in and our frontline workers. Hi. Uh, my name is Steve Robinson. Um, my question is, are the insurers, we, there was very little talk about who pays for all of this. And uh, my question is really about that. Um, who is the largest payer for the treatment? Is it, is it Medicaid? Um, and is uh, Medicaid, if it is, or uh, the private insurers, um, becoming more amenable to paying for the treatment? And have they, um, uh, I guess, woken up to the uh, fact that they... Uh, what they were paying for maybe wasn't working and um, there are alternative treatments and are they becoming more amenable to paying for those types of treatments
3: I think Medicaid is now the largest payer although it's not the majority a lot of substance abuse treatment is still paid through block grants to the states Um, So, but Medicaid has been increasing and because of healthcare reform and a variety of changes related to healthcare reform including parity for mental health and substance abuse treatment most people expect the role of medicaid to continue to increase i will share with you because this is something we've actually looked at and published on that over the decade between about 2004 and 2013 that you did see states generally move towards being more willing to pay for effective treatment. And by that, I mean medication-assisted treatment. Um, So that by 2013, within every state, Medicaid paid for buprenorphine for at least some Medicaid enrollees, and all but 17 states paid for methadone for some. So there has been a movement towards that that said you will still hear many providers say that the rates are very low, that they're insufficient. It's quite clear that there's insufficient capacity, long waiting lists. Um, but in, in in terms of private insurance, I think lots of plans are still all over the place. Certainly, you hear lots and lots of stories about people being unable to get themselves or their children treatment or the treatment they want Um, There, too, I think we're seeing gradual movement towards the recognition that this is a problem and needs to be treated in the same way that we treat other physical health or other mental health disorders. That said, both in terms of commercial insurance and in terms of public insurance, I think most people would agree that we're still a long way from where we need to be.
4: Mm I just wanted to add to that, I think the other challenge is the dosage of treatment. And how long you get treatment for. So, you know, particularly for the self employed, excuse me, self insured organizations, the large employers, um, you know, who decides that six days of inpatient is the right amount for someone who's addicted? Mm -hmm. And I think that's been one of the bigger challenges is that there's sort of been this increasing reduction in the amount of time that you actually have. Um, So you can get sober, but then, you know, you're probably gonna relapse. And I think that's been one of the challenges: is that this, uh, that the I don't know that the evidence is out there to be helpful to be able to say to an insurer which they want to know what's the right amount that I should mm-hmm. be offering.
2: The the National Institute on Drug Abuse, in their principles of treatment, reports that anything less than a 90-day continuum of care for a, a substance use diagnosis, not a problematic user or heavy, but a diagnosis. Anything less than a 90-day continuum of care is financially and clinically a waste of time. And if you look at who gets a 90-day continuum of care in our treatment system today, it's the same question Brad raised earlier, but that it, it's probably less than 5 percent of the people coming in.
6: Hi, my name is Barbara Ann Markle. I think, is your name Dr. Acker? Acker with an Hacker. H. <laughs> Um, you asked a very good question what 's what's the difference between here and europe and I wonder why that question isn 't asked more often and i think if if I were to suggest that the problem might be looked at completely differently for example we 've been through prohibition with alcohol. What if we took all the money out where 's the money a sort of a you know as a crime is treated follow the money so if you were to decriminalize it, which is the only way, uh, as far as I could see, to take the profit out of it, both for the cartels and for the drug companies, and put that money into treatment. It's a huge policy shift. But if that were to happen, what about that?
4: You know, that, there has been a very long-standing discussion about decriminalization, again, I, I just remind everyone that this is not a new problem for this U.S. Right, and we have been struggling with it literally since heroin was, as far as I'm concerned, since heroin was made illegal. There's some phenomenal books on the history of, of substance use in this country. Remember, there was cocaine and Coca-Cola. You know, so so this this criminalization of a situation that one could argue was a chronic disease and things like that. Um, There's some interesting uh, research that I've heard about recently looking at what happens in the states where marijuana is now legal and whether or not that's going to have any impact on um, opioid use because, as you probably know, some people are also talking about medical marijuana as a strategy for pain relief, Mm -hmm. which has a very different impact in terms of long-term addiction and withdrawal and things like that. So it's got its own set of issues, but... Um, That is one thing that—and I've certainly heard rumors in Colorado that, in fact, that has had an impact, and it's also changed the dynamics of sales, um, which is what Michael had talked about earlier. So the challenge of how to balance what's healthy and what we feel the population can handle and what's legal and illegal, I think we're going to be dealing with for a while— Mm-hmm. But I don't – Brad, you said – I mean, have you heard about uh, this Yeah, I, I think
3: there's actually some pretty good preliminary data in one or two studies, and there may be others in the room who are more familiar with us than myself, that states that have medical marijuana subsequent to that have seen decreases in opioid-related overdoses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's preliminary. There are certainly lots and lots of other issues and questions. But, but I think it sort of gets back to the idea of exactly how terribly complex – This is, and there are so many pieces. And so, I think this idea of really beginning to understand these policy changes because everything that we're talking about here and all the suggestions from the room, there are implications and potential unintended consequences. And and I think really being thoughtful in thinking these through, and I'll, I'll share with you that in all the areas that I have studied, this is the area more than any other as I look at the data and I am. Surprised by what I see and it, the stories that are out there, and what I expect to see from certain policies. And it ends up playing out very, very different because of all the complexities of human behavior and addiction within a very complicated healthcare system and legal system. Um, but certainly, that doesn't mean that we can't start to pursue things that appear to be effective and begin to move in those directions. Mm-hmm.
7: Hi, uh, David Harris from University of Pittsburgh's Law School. Um, <clears throat> my view of this is rather long, and I, I want to uh, take up Dr. Hacker's comment that there have been other waves of drug addiction. When I first started laboring in the trenches of the criminal justice system 30-some years ago, uh, this panel up here would not be medical people. This would be, all be uniforms uh, and badges with guns. Uh, and I am happy very happy to see that this is a medical problem. But it's hard for me not to remember that when we had another group of people going through a drug epidemic, those words drug drug epidemic, uh, we didn't treat it that way last time. Now that could have several explanations. Uh, One might be that we have simply matured in our view of uh, what is appropriate as a way to treat a problem like this, and I hope that's the answer. Another answer might be that the face of this drug epidemic is white. And the face of that drug epidemic was brown and black. Another might be that the markets for how this drug is distributed in this epidemic are much different. Uh, uh, We have pharmaceutical companies as the big distributors. uh, And in the past, it was guys on corners and people in big warehouses and using ships and things like that. I throw this out as a comment. I I don't really know if there's a question attached to it, but I would like your reaction to the fact that we are maybe doing the right thing, and I wonder why we didn't do it back then. I wonder uh, where this can take us now uh, as we consider the larger problem of drug addiction, not just this one.
1: And we're gonna, it's too tempting having Al sitting right in front of you to not have a response here. If that's okay
8: <laughs> I, I think I, I agree with David he's right on right on target. And it is it is striking that today we still have fifty percent of the people in federal prisons are there on drug charges, twenty percent or so, sixteen percent in Pennsylvania on drug charges, and, and I think most of the country has come to realize that uh, that's not terribly effective, uh, that the, the locking up the seller recruits a replacement mm-hmm. rather than uh, avoids the transaction. Uh, but I wanted to raise another issue and, and I think it's it's Brad's pr- proposal that uh, we get something for Rand and it strikes me that if we were to be able to maintain a list of all the prescriptions for opioids, who wrote them, who received them? That generates a very large database. It da- endangers privacy, but that may, at some point we may feel the problem is sufficiently severe, that that privacy issue is of lesser concern. Uh, it involves big data that that uh, Rand would certainly be in a great position to deal with to try to identify the distribution mechanisms, the duration mechanisms, the 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 process by which the distribution goes on in ways that we could start to get a handle on it. And at what level do we uh, of uh, fatalities do we have to have before the society says, well, damn it, that's a reasonable thing that we better get some knowledge about in order to be able to intervene.
3: Well, let let me respond to that because I I feel honored to be able to say that great minds think alike because certainly I have some Mm -hmm. colleagues at Rand and myself that we are right now actually involved with analyses of some data sets very much like that. Um, And we have some proposals in to obtain funding to obtain more data sets like that. Now, the data sets that we will have will, in some ways, be de identified with respect to the prescriber. So we won't know who, although we will know lots about them, but we won't necessarily know who. But I do think. But will
8: there be a serial number so that you could. You, you won't know them, they'll be de identified, but if you're saying.
3: We, we Well, and, and I refer to in my comment about clinically questionable prescribing, that's exactly the type of data set that we're using to be able to understand in some ways what are some of these patterns. Um, Karen and I and some other colleagues in the room have had some conversations recently about sort of building on those types of approaches to understand how some of those patterns are linked to a whole range of negative outcomes and our colleagues here at Allegheny County are doing some of it. So I do think certainly Rand and others in the room this opportunity to thoughtfully and carefully use some of the data available and one of the things that we've been very successful with is combining different types of data to really begin to understand pieces of these issues and again as you allude to through that, come up with actionable interventions at a state level, at a system level, at a provider level that allows us to begin to both identify patients at greatest risk, providers who we may want to focus our education efforts on, and really think about that ways as a society through policy and through clinical interventions to begin to address some of these problems.
1: And and as you brought... Um, to my attention, Brad, it'd be great to have some modeling for the unintended consequences. You know, a a fix, just knowing our trip to Colorado to ask them about the legalization of marijuana, I mean, there's a downside to everything. Better to be prepared for it and, and be able to predict. We have one more question, but the good news is the panel is available afterward for a few minutes. If you want to ask anyone a question, They'll be available out in the um, uh, gathering room. So, just one more question, and I'm, I'm glad I don't have to decide.
9: All right. Uh, my name is Onyechukwu Regandi. I'm a lawyer, sure. and as you you all spoke, I was thinking about the you know regulatory intervention that could be possible in this area, and the difficulty basically <coughs> is that. These people are victims, and so it cannot be viewed as uh, people that you could attack uh, through law enforcement. But the pharmaceutical companies seem to have an incentive not to research into better ways of dealing uh, with the problem because addiction guarantees consumption and basically keeps their profit. So do you not think that the FDA could apply some regulatory tools to nudge uh, these companies to uh, perhaps put more money into researching um, on better ways. So I mean, there has to be better ways than the current solutions, right, to fix the problem.
1: And a drug.
4: Well, <laughs> I, I think it's important to remember that the, the FDA is a regulatory body, so it's not, an enforced, it's not a law enforcement body. Um, as was mentioned earlier, there have been a number of lo- lawsuits in states to this point, and I would imagine that if they are successful and continue to be, you're going to see them in a lot of other states. So, for example, the... Um, Purdue Pharma, which produced oxycodone, was um, sued in a, several states. Um, again, the amount of money that they paid in the long run is just like a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. I know in Massachusetts they sued in one, and we got, in our jurisdiction, I want to say we got $220,000 to do interventions. It's nothing, right? So, And it was for two years. So it's not a lot. The other one that we're hearing about is in California, where they have sued um, and won, as far as I know, getting uh, take dr- drug take-back programs and saying that the pharmaceutical companies have to be the ones responsible for picking up those medications and destroying them. And my understanding is that that has recently passed. As you begin to see these, you're gonna, I, I would imagine like so many things, whether it's the cigarette companies, Sugar, (laughs) you know, whoever else uh, we are suggesting has been responsible for our ales, that you will see um, these host of policies that will be tested in court. And then you will see, generally, uh, a huge outpouring by the pharmaceutical companies trying to prevent it, because once one goes, so, too, does a domino effect, and you'll start to see many other states do the same thing. We could end up with a very large pharmaceutical... um, you know, as as we had with the tobacco settlement, we could end up with something similar. I would not be surprised.
1: Hmm. Um, Mike and Brad, where, as we wind up, did you want to make a response to that question or make a final comment as well, Karen?
2: I'd like to make a final comment, if I could, Karen. Not to leave you all in despair, uh, uh, but to, but to challenge you also. Uh, In many ways, we know what to do. It's just doing it. Uh, We have the pieces. It's just that it's not a focus. I would encourage us in our thinking of a solution for this to separate the opiate epidemic and overdose deaths from the whole issue of addressing addiction in America so that we can take one illness, a manner of it, opiates, and put it back into medical practice where it belongs and do what we need to do with that while we still address the larger issue of alcoholism and other drug addictions in our society. Last year at this time I had the privilege of speaking to a group up in North Hills called Bridge to Hope and in that meeting there were almost 200 parents who had lost kids to overdose in our western Pennsylvania community. And at night everybody had a candle and everybody said a name. And of course there wasn't a dry eye in the room at the end of it. But at the end they came up and they said wherever I go could we please please remember that all of this gives them hope. And that's the most important thing we can do. So, thank you.
4: I do want to just come back to this gentleman's question because I do think that there are multiple sides to this issue. And while we're focused right now on overdoses, which are by and large impacting white males, the people who are involved often in, homis- in the homicide issues in our African-American communities are the other side of this drug trade. Um, And I do want to remind us, because I cannot help but feel that these are intimately connected to one another with different types of outcomes. And and I do think that, um, absolutely, there is institutional racism. There are all kinds of things. I've even heard it suggested that the reason that African Americans have not been as impacted is because doctors did not feel comfortable giving them opioids, I, you know, I don't have the evidence to suggest that, but I think that all of these kinds of things have fed into this, and I can tell you where I've done speaking, this has come up many, many times, and um, I absolutely do not blame people for raising that issue.
3: You know, I, I think you hear us up here talking about large numbers, thousands of people, tens of millions of dollars, and the one thing I continuously reflect upon is behind each of those numbers is an individual suffering and a family suffering. And, and I think that all of this work, it's important, it's critical to keep that in mind that these are real people and real lives that we're talking about. And I, I just want to thank all of you for taking time out of your very, very busy days to come and join us um, in this conversation about this very important issue because I do think it's something that you've heard all of us talk about that's really going to take all of us working in many different ways to be able to address. So thank you.
0: Okay, so I want to thank you all for coming as well, but I also want all of us to take a moment to thank our panel. (laughs) This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org slash events.